Welcome to Meaningful Journeys, a podcast about pilgrimage. I'm Dr. Heather Warfield, and I am passionate about connecting humanity through our shared quests for meaning. In this podcast, I'll be talking with pilgrims and pilgrimage scholars. I will have conversations with people impacted by both ancient and contemporary pilgrimage journeys, and we will also hear from people who live at these sacred sites. This program is supported in part by Antioch University New England and the Meaningful Life Institute. I'm joined um, on this episode uh, by Christian Clifford, who is uh, has written extensively about topics related to Catholic history and the Catholic experience. And we're going to start by talking about his most recent book, which is called Pilgrimage in Search of the Real California Missions. Um, And then weave in uh, some of the past writings he's done, as well as his his own experience as a Catholic historian and uh, and maybe other parts of his Catholic identity. So, uh, Christian, why in 2021, why at that point did this book called Pilgrimage seem like um, it, everything was coming together to, to publish this? So I want to say 2018, I started my pilgrimage and I was reading your article, your essay on um, the pilgrim in a developmental context and pilgrimage as developmental experience a psychological lens. And I really liked how that you, you presented the stages. So the decision to embark on the pilgrimage was um, my father-in-law in the Philippines passed away suddenly. And my wife and son <clears throat> got on a flight probably a day or two later to go to the Philippines. And I, I remained behind because uh, of work uh, issues. A year later, I would go and um, pay respect at his gravesite and so on. But long story short, I was sitting there um, maybe a day or two after my family had left. And I said, boy, am I bored without them. At the time, I think my son was about 10. And the house was very quiet. <clears throat> and I remembered a group, uh, a Facebook group that I'd met actually in person, some members. And um at a California missions conference a couple of years before called the California Mission Walkers, this group of Catholic and non-Catholic people who really like to walk between the 21 California missions in California from San Diego in the South, all the way to um, Sonoma in the North. And I saw, I came across their Facebook page and I'm like, well, that sounds like something that can keep me busy. And um, I said, how hard can it be? <clears throat> I was in the Navy. I was a vet. I'm a veteran and I was a Boy Scout. I'm one of six boys. So I went through a lot of, uh, I don't know, um, hazing growing up and, you know, real machismo family and um, went to an all boys Catholic high school that I teach at now. And I said, I need to go do it. And I got my pack ready. I, I drove up to Sonoma. The book I present from Sonoma in the South, I'm sorry, San Diego in the South to Sonoma in the North, just for ease, for people to kind of follow in their minds geographically easily. But in reality, I started in Sonoma and I kind of did in bits and pieces until I put it all together, yeah, about 800 miles. And um, oh boy, it was a Friday evening, got in the car, had my backpack with water and some snacks. And it was a very short walk from Sonoma the, the last mission founded by the Franciscan Friars in California in the 1820s. And I walked to Petaluma, probably about 10 miles at that first leg. And I thought I was going to die. I thought I was going to get hit by a car. I, my, my feet were so um, blistered. Um, it was every step hurt. So I didn't know if I had it in me to do eventually 800 miles, but um, uh, miraculously, I got a second win the next day, had some breakfast, and I continued on my journey until a friend could pick me up uh, just north of San Rafael in Marin County. And uh, because the public bus from uh, 
from Petaluma back to my car and um, only a seven miles would have taken like two hours to get to my car. So it all worked out. And as I went along, um, I got to meet new people in the group. I walked with some of them. A lot of advice was given. And um, I kept little blogs along the way. And I took those and I converted them into notes to put into a book. But the book is kind of, uh, it's not a guidebook per se on the California Mission Trail. Um, there's a little bit about that, a little bit about my personal journey, but a lot of like, you can see the subtitle is In Search of the Real California Missions because of the controversy. One of the things that I've noticed in my research is they're almost a silent voice in all of it are Catholic Native Americans and, and especially mission Indians and the descendants of the mission Indians. Uh, they don't seem prominent at all in the interviews, in uh, secular newspapers, when that whole controversy stems up about California mission history and um, colonialism. So I, in my research, I, I really, I walk with the indigenous, the Spanish, the Mexican, Californian uh, in this journey because every segment from mission to mission has a story of one of them. And they're very powerful stories. And you have to dig deep to do research on them, but they exist and they're very powerful. And I think it really gets people who are open to learning. Uh, it kind of rethinks the mission narrative that they're, they're, they consume through popular media. Yeah. I think it would be certainly useful for me um, and probably to many of our listeners uh, to, to, go to a very basic history of the California missions because sure. what is surrounding you for for many people we yeah. are either just detached from or we don't even know the history of the California missions yeah so 1769 um actually have to go back further than that so the reason why the Spaniards even mapped out California is the Spanish galleons coming from Manila the uh, winds would push them north and they'd make landfall here in California on their way to Acapulco in Mexico. And they needed fresh water. So they had some limited interaction with natives and you know they, they continue on their way to Acapulco, offload the silks and other and spices from Asia across the uh, Mexico to the Caribbean and then back on galleons to sail to uh, Spain. So that goes back to the early six, mid 16th century. A, a few um, explorers had mapped it out and basically all the maps and intel, intelligence uh, went into archives somewhere in Madrid. And fast forward to 1768, about that time in the new intelligence coming to Madrid to the King of Spain was, hey, the British are kind of intruding on our lands that we traditionally said are ours and also the Russians a little bit. So the King of Spain said, let's get boots on the ground. And he sent uh, what, what historians uh, you know, refer to as the sacred expedition. Uh, you had the church and the state, the military and the Franciscan priests coming up here to California and Really, the idea was to convert the natives so that they would become automatically Spanish citizens. So back in uh, St. Petersburg, back in uh, London, the Spanish ambassadors can say, hey, our people are there. Stay away. Right. But before then, there really wasn't. Right. There were uh, just native peoples living their lives and so on that, you know, historically, their ancestors did have very limited interaction with Spanish explorers and, you know, Spanish galleon sailors that came on, on uh, shore to get water and food and stuff. But that being said, 1769, Friar Junipero Serra, Franciscan priest from Mallorca, Spain, who had, he was evangelizing native Catholics who are already Catholic, but they kind of didn't have a priest around. So they kind of reteaching re them in the Sierra Gorda part of uh, right north of Mexico City. 
he was given the task to go to Baja, California, because in the geopolitical scene at the time, the Jesuits, that religious order in the Catholic Church was becoming so influential that a lot of laymen, Catholic laymen who were uh, landowners felt like they were getting in the way of their uh, opportunity for wealth, I guess. And they really uh, said to the uh, king, you know, they lobbied to get the Jesuits expelled. So basically they were all called back to Europe. In the last part of the Spanish empire, and the Jesuits in the Spanish Empire to be called back were in Baja, California, where they had been for some time. They set up uh, over 21 missions, I forget the number, over about a hundred year period. And um, the Franciscans took over because they were seen as more loyal to the crown. And Sarah was there for about a year. And then he got the uh, okay to lead the expedition to what then was called um, New California, Nueva California, and Baja California, which we know today, then was called Old California. So he came to San Diego, July 1st, 1769. He would eventually found the first nine of the 21 California missions. And then his predecessor, Father Lesuen, will find uh, the next 10. So, and then the last two were by some other guy, other Franciscans later just about when the Mexicans uh, revolted and took, you know, kicked Spain out. Um, it's just about that time frame. So in California, the majority of California, native Californians, which I think most historians argue are about 300,000 pre-contact, did not come into contact with the uh, Spaniards. The Spaniards' sphere of influence is about, uh, like I said, 800 miles north to south, and about 50 miles inland. That was really the extent. And California is, you know, huge. So the coastal area up to San Francisco, Sonoma, that area. And I'd say about one out of three were in contact with the mission system. And of course we know, uh, like most of the history at that time, when the Europeans, be them Catholic or not, interacted with the, uh, Natives, you know, they didn't have the immunity system. Whereas back in Europe, like Junipero Serra on the island of Mallorca, uh, about 50 years, 60 years before his own birth, uh, a large number of the island was killed due to disease and so on. So his family, his ancestors built up immunity to that stuff and survived it. And of course we know. We know that for a fact with COVID, right? I mean, we're, we're dealing with that in some capacity. Thank God that's kind of, seems like winding down and so on. But uh, yeah, that's kind of the gist of the overall general story of the Spaniards in California. And uh, have the missions been um, inhabited from their, the, from the beginning, from their first origin? No, no. So there's two stories that are kind of generally out there, which are both are not good stories. They're, they're myths, right? You have the Garden of Eden myth, which uh, tends to be in uh, Native American circles or activists for Native Americans. Like, boy, oh boy, if those Spaniards never came, we'd be living a perfect, perfect world. Everything would be great. The Garden of Eden myth. But then you have the also opposite that, the extreme would be the, the California mission myth of like, oh boy, if the Spaniards never came, they would have never uh, had uh, a steady supply of food source. They wouldn't have, uh, it was inevitable just how world history was going. Um, and, you know, you look around modern California and a lot of the things we have are thanks to the Spaniard, that kind of mentality. Um, so it's more complex than both those stories. And, um, it was a tough go. I mean, there's no if, ands, or buts about it. Uh, there were some revolts early on. Um, natives came to the missions for many different reasons. One was protection, you know, from their their enemies. Uh, one was that steady food supply. Uh, another was sincere faith. You know, hey, this message is so much different and, and new, and and I like uh, the Christian uh, message. So it really ran the gamut. Uh, and when you look at California mission history, the, the, the 21 missions, 
each one has kind of its own unique history, you know, like uh, California's in a horrible drought right now. And, you know, there are certain pockets that they had a good supply where another mission uh, was in a drought, their uh, crops weren't doing well, and they'd help each other, you know, they'd help each other. So they're almost like little microcosms with their own little history, their own successes, their own challenges. Uh, generally speaking, you had uh, two priests at each mission, and you had uh, anywhere between six to eight soldiers. So, and then of course you had uh, hundreds and hundreds, sometimes thousands of Native American converts. So, uh, I, 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 if they wanted to kill them, if they're that bad, they could have done it overnight. They really could have. I know some people make the argument like, oh, psychological coercion and things like that. I don't know how strong that argument is. Um, in the roughly 50 years that the Spaniards were in California, you had uh, 142 Franciscan priests uh, serve the Native American communities and the missions, and um, two were, were murdered, two. Uh, one very early on in San Diego, who was actually very liked. His name was uh, Father Jaime. Uh, he was bludgeoned to death. Uh, they couldn't even recognize his face. They beat him so badly. Um, I know that doesn't sound like he was well-liked, but he, he, he really was well-liked, but not, I guess, by the people that did that to him. And then in later on at Mission Santa Cruz uh, in uh, kind of near the San Francisco Bay Area, there was a priest there that supposedly was pretty mean. It was, it was, it came later through interviews of people, you know, their children at the time kind of thing, that he was not a nice guy and that he was killed in the sleep, even though, even though they actually had a trial to find out if that was true, the Spaniards, and they could not find any evidence that that was true, that he was murdered. Um, so yeah, you had two kind of juxtaposing stories there regarding him is one of the missions san juan capistrano yes that's this is down in orange so, county i have completely yeah. forgotten about this i visited twice as a child with my parents this is where the swallows return right that's right that's right well so what's the story about the swallows i mean now i'm i'm like rethinking wait a second maybe my contact with even with the ideas of pilgrimage happened yeah. in a different context than i had, than i had thought about it until you're talking about this and then i realized i've actually been I, to, to to at least one of these missions well i'm i'm wearing my missions shirt i don't know if you can see that yeah well and i see i've been trying to figure I out know. i see yeah yeah okay Here's san juan capistrano here san luis rey San Francisco de Assis. And he, oh, it's down here, way, way down at the bottom. So Mission San Juan Capistrano. Uh, I'm not a real expert on the whole swallows thing, but uh, the swallows do return there at a certain time of year and they make little uh, homes that they, they live in and, and breed and all that fun stuff. And uh, I think there's a really popular song in the 1920s sung about it. So it became kind of a part of Americana. And uh, it's a very popular mission in terms of attendance. I want to say like a million and a half people visit a year. It's, it's the number one out of the 21, that's for sure, in terms of visitors. And interestingly enough, they don't even have a mission because the grounds are really well kept and beautiful gardens. But the church itself, the mission church, was like the tallest thing west of the Mississippi for some time. It was built, I think... Uh, uh, only after two years of it being built, and of course, that was uh, Indian labor, mission Indian labor, right, mainly with uh, Spanish uh, artisans and so on. And it was destroyed in the earthquake like two, a year or two after it opened. It's, it's called the Great Stone Church. It's massive. And only remnants of it remain. It's very beautiful, but it ended up killing a couple dozen of uh, mission Indians who were actually in the church praying. I think they were at mass or praying at the time. So it's very tragic too. But right next door is the Mission Basilica, San Juan Capistrano. It's a modern church and it was basically built on the, um, the kind of floor plan of the Great Stone Church. So it's pretty cool. But yeah, it's, it's a really great uh, mission to, to visit. I remember it being beautiful. And I also remember being incredibly indignant that 
on our vacation, we had to stop there because my parents were interested yeah. and my sister and I, you know, we wanted, we were quite, we wanted to be at SeaWorld or, you know, sure. it's a Knott's Berry Farm or something. And so when we had to stop there and this was like a day of our vacation, we couldn't believe it. And I remember, you know, complaining about why we had to do this. So yeah. thanks a lot, Christian. You've brought up all sure. of these like family of origin oh my gosh. memories for me. Uh, but I do remember the mission, the it being very beautiful. Um, and then, mm -hmm. and then I remember, I think there's a reference in a movie. I, I want to say it's dumb and dumber or something. They talk about the, the swallows returning and it's so random and has nothing to do with this podcast, but I, I'm also remembering there's some line about yeah. it in a movie. And you know, what's really cool about Mission San Juan Capistrano too, is that there's a chapel there, which is original and historians can verify that St. Junipero Serra actually celebrated mass there. They call it the Serra Chapel. And it's the only place that historians can say, Sarah was here. So that's kind of oh, cool. Oh, that's interesting. For, 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 for pilgrims, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and of course, uh, at Mission Carmel is where he's buried. So we all know yeah. he's there. Yeah. Yeah. So when people, I mean, obviously there are visitors. Like, um, I don't think we were going to see where Sarah did, did a mass. I, that wasn't... I, a part of our family narrative, but do you think that that is what draws so many people there? Or is it just because it's in a really beautiful location? I think both. I really think both. Yeah. Um, it runs the gamut why people go in the first place, I think. I do think they're very good also with um, communications. And I think they've been around for a long time. They have a lot of uh, army of volunteers who love the place. One of them is a, a friend of mine who is in the California Mission Walkers. His name's Jerry, and uh, he's a volunteer tour guide there. And he hosted me, he and his wife, one night when I was walking through that area from Mission San Juan Capistrano to um, Mission San Gabriel through the LA Basin. And uh, yeah, we had a great conversation about it. People just love it. They, they love the missions. Uh, they love the history. Uh, sometimes I do think that uh, I brought it up earlier, you know, the, the mission myth, it's romanticized and so on. But like it or not, whoever you are, 19 of the 21 missions are still Catholic parishes, you know, and they're places of worship. And there's the stories of people being baptized there, getting married there, uh, having loved ones buried out of there. And that's what we have in common with the Catholics who came before us, the, the mission Indians and so on. Their story is our story. You know, those things don't go away. They, they remain. So it's very powerful. I want to hear uh, about, so you've talked about the individual missions and I recognize that people um, may go to one mission and that's a pilgrimage in and of itself, the visiting mm -hmm. one mission. Um, you know, for a couple of hours or a day. And then there's this whole other bigger thing that you're talking about, which is walking from mission to mission, yeah. which is, is extraordinary. And first of all, the distance is extraordinary. Second of all, what are there accommodations? I mean, I recognize California has, I mean, it's very, there's a lot mm -hmm. of cities and villages. Um, but, but what is it, what happens like logistically if you're walking from mission to mission and someone wants to do this in one continuous um, journey? How is that yeah. possible? So the California Mission Walkers, they started, I want to say like, I want to say 2008, around that time. And since then, let's see, let me look at my little Compostela of sorts here. I have a little certificate of completion. Uh, I was number 49 who had finished. So I also have my little, they also have like a little passport book. It's kind of like the Santiago, Santiago de Compostela, which a lot of them have done before. And they have little stamps at each mission. But on there is a great thing. You can, um, they have a file with uh, names and emails uh, and where they live. And you can reach out to them and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to be in the area. I'm going to walk in. This is my, my itinerary. 
and people will, you know, sorry, I can't, I'll pray for you, or you'll be in my thoughts, or, or I'd like to meet you, can I walk with you a little bit? Um, some missions have like uh, an ambassador. It's somebody kind of in the community who is like the head person to contact. And other times I'd, I'd stay with people like that, or I would stay in a motel, which is affordable. Or of course, when I was in the area here in my backyard, I'm in the San Francisco Bay area, I take public transportation and then uh, kind of end up close to home and my family would come and get me. Uh, I, I kind of alluded to this. I have a, a map here of California. I don't know. It's pretty hard to see, but I had it on the wall in my home and I would mark the areas that I did so I didn't repeat and I kind of could visually see what I needed to do, when I could do it. I was very practical about it. Um, like my friend, my colleague just uh, went on his fifth pilgrimage in Spain and he did the uh, traditional one from Southern France there to uh, the Camino Frances. Yes. Yeah. And he said that was 500 miles. He did in like 45 days, 50 days or something like that. And, um, you know, he stays at those little places along the way. There's no infrastructure like that in California. And it's really built around that because it's so old. But in California, it's so modern. So there's only one night where I, I had actually, it was actually two nights. I slept outside in a tent and that was near Mission San, San Antonio de Padua, which was founded by St. Junipero Serra, is I think the third of the nine that he founded. And that's really the remotest. And I think the most authentic because it's uh, Highway 101, which goes all the way from Washington State down. It's a California highway. And it's the major thoroughfare here in the Bay Area. It's called the Bayshore Freeway. Um, it's like 25 miles off of the 101 or Highway 101 in a very isolated remote part of California. And it's right on uh, an army reserve base, like the biggest one at west of the Mississippi called Fort Hunter Liggett. It's right next door. And um, that was so remote that I actually brought a uh, backpack with me when my brother and I did a portion together and um, it was really awesome because the stars were out and uh, I remember the the coyotes there must have been it sounded like hundreds of coyotes at like three in the morning just howling it seemed like they're right next to our, our campsite and um, I thought to myself this is this must be what Junipero Sarah the other friars you know, when they're walking from mission to mission or traveling from mission to mission must have felt like they must have felt they must have heard coyotes, you know, the ancestors of those coyotes is really powerful. It's really cool. But that was really the only time I really had to rough it. You had to rough it. So the a lot of people talk about the importance of other people, uh, other pilgrims. And I've heard you talk about some of the mission volunteers or part or or members of the California walkers or, or Cal, sorry, California mission trail walkers. Did I say that right? California mission walkers. Mission CM, walkers. CMW, yeah. yeah. I was trying to get the acronym right as I was saying it. Sure. I knew I was messing it up. Sure. Uh, that, that they, they can be um, sometimes part of the pilgrimages. Uh, what other type so do you have many encounters with strangers who are not pilgrims but they're just people who are yeah. along the way yeah i did and you know it's funny i i recall one of your earlier questions there were a few people that have done the i think it's like five from beginning to end just one full swoop you know they, they call it a three-way uh it's probably more than five and i know of one who was a, is a uh, now he's a Catholic priest at the time I think he was a professed religious, and he did it without a penny because Franciscans can't have any personal wealth, and somebody donated a plane ticket for him from he flew from Cincinnati to San Diego, and he got off and he walked without a penny, and I think he has he has you know really powerful stories of people, um, strangers, really kind of showing the um 
what we have in common in our human condition, you know, is really powerful stories. Uh, I, on the other hand, uh, is kind of planned out, you know, it's very practical. I kind of said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this all on my own. And eventually I reached out to people and it made it so much better of an experience uh, walking with people. And um, so I guess I had the best of both worlds because sometimes it's really nice to be quiet too while you're walking out there with your own thoughts and praying and without any, um, any, any obstructions, you know? So I don't offhand strangers. One of my favorite stories is, you know, there's always that, that, I make a couple of references to them in my book, but I think one of my favorites was I was walking towards Mission San Juan Capistrano uh, north from the south. And um, I was at a stoplight waiting for the light to change. And uh, maybe about a, a mile from the mission, my destination, and this group of little kids uh, bike riding um, they were waiting, they, they, they rode up to the light with me and they're standing there and they're looking at me and I must've looked like a, a weirdo, you know, and sweating and hot and pack and poles and big hat. And they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm walking to the mission. Oh yeah, uh, from where? And I'm like, well, I, I started in San Diego and they're like, what? you're crazy. So that was really kind of a fun little experience um, having that conversation with the kids. Yeah. Cause I'm, I'm a high school teacher. I've taught little kids uh, middle school age too. So it kind of reminded me of when I taught middle school kids, their, their fun age, their reaction they, to stuff. They probably were thinking you're doing this by choice. Like, yeah, I don't, no. I don't get it. No, what no. are you doing? Yeah. Are you being paid for this? No. <laughs> <laughs> How have you found uh, the pilgrimages? Um, because you've had many, and I'm going to get into some of the other things that you've done in a second. Uh, how how has that impacted, or affirmed, or challenged your your Catholic faith and your Catholic identity? Um. Well, I would think that it really helped me be more patient and you know i'm irish catholic i grew up in a big family and um sometimes i think that uh the personality traits that i grew up with you know the irish temper and things like that they're not helpful they're not helpful uh, especially when uh teaching young people you got to be really patient so i kind of wrestled with that you know through the years and um this process helped me reflect upon that a lot because you gotta be patient. You're forced to be patient. Um, sometimes I'd walk uh, over a marathon a day, over 26 miles. And to get to your destination, you know, it's a journey. It really is a journey. And uh, you gotta be patient with yourself, with others. And I have work to do. I still have work to do. Um, but to be aware, I think that's 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 a really important place to to start to be aware. Um, do you do you feel like you are a, that that pilgrimages have helped you better understand Catholicism, or does the Catholicism help you understand the pilgrimage, or maybe it's symbiotic? Oh uh, yeah 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 yeah. I think you brought that up in that essay I referred to earlier. Um, it really was symbiotic. Um, one of the things that uh, was really great was when I went to Mission San Fernando, Rey de, de España, which is in the San Fernando Valley, just over the hill from the LA Basin. And um, there was a baptism being performed, right? And it was like a couple of babies and a, I think an adult and a couple of teens were being... Um, entered entered into the into the church and uh, it was just i was i just walked in and uh i was way in the back and it was a really overwhelming i don't know i guess in a catholic sense that this sense of the holy spirit at work that i am part of something that is so ancient and so much a part of people's being and 
this sense of community was so profound. I know people get that in a lot of different ways. I mean, I just went to the um, the Killers concert at the Chase Center in uh, San Francisco. You can almost get that that feeling a little bit at a concert, right? I mean, everyone's there because they like um, Brandon Flowers and the Killers, right? Uh, but I think the Catholic uh, experience is just so much bigger than that. There's something so much deeper than going to a sporting event or and saying the Pledge of Allegiance. And, you know, we have that in common and we like the game. But yeah, to me, it's much deeper, just much more profound. And I really sense that at that moment. You know, the, uh, the you were bringing up the Knights of Columbus earlier. They uh, got wind of my pilgrimage and um, they did a video of it. It's about a, interestingly enough, it took a, a camera crew who is contracted with the Knights of Columbus. They're called Spirit Juice out of Chicago. Uh, they flew out, this is during COVID, and I think it was a four-person team with all their equipment, and we spent the weekend together, almost like 16 hours of filming, and they condensed the story down to five minutes. And it's a really nice little video of, I think, the spiritual experience in a nutshell of what I got. Is that how, publicly how available? Yeah, yeah, you just, uh, you put my name in, Christian Clifford, uh, nights i think it'll come right up or even okay. put my put my name christian clifford and um you go to videos and that'll be one of the videos that comes up okay. i think it's called in the footsteps of walking in the footsteps of saint hundred sarah but that was pretty neat uh having a a video crew following me and stuff like that for a weekend and getting the story out there to more people because i think you you referred to it earlier it's like you know, you could do, if you're physically incapacitated, you could do a virtual pilgrimage to these great sites, uh, spiritual sites of, of worship. And uh, in your own community, let's say, I mean, I never thought I could do 800 mile walk, it, never. And it just took, you know, that, that situation in my life to say, I'm going to go do this, I'm going to try it, you know. And I really challenged myself physically, mentally, spiritually, and uh, was pretty surprised at what I could accomplish. Uh, I really surprised myself. And, but let's say, oh, you know what? I'm not, I'm not there yet. You could do maybe one in your own community. You know, let's say there's, uh, you know, in my case, you know, two Catholic churches, two miles apart from each other, or a Catholic church and Three miles away is a really historical place that has something to do with local Catholic history. You could do a pilgrimage between those places and almost create the pilgrimage yourself, like learning about the history and, okay, what prayers would be appropriate to recite or actions, symbolic actions to take. Like uh, I incorporated in my, my book, you know, from Santiago to Compostela at, with the Iron Cross, right? Uh, the, the rock and writing a, an intention, a petition there, um, what's weighing you down. And I did that at Mission Sonoma. And I just uh, got an email from somebody who had read my book and she was in Los Angeles and she, she drove to a, a few of the uh, missions and she ended up, uh, thanks to my book, she said, and, and did the little sacred, wrote a, a you know, petition and left it there to kind of unburden herself. So that was really nice to hear. There is something about being in the space where other people have um, left something from their heart, whether it's a prayer or a petition or gratitude or um, something that is really, really personal. And then seeing you know, then when, when we walk into that space and see that and then leave, it, it's really powerful. Uh, mm -hmm. to, to be able to share in like this continuity of humanity to know that even through time and distance, we can connect even when we aren't physically present. Yeah, you know, years ago, this is going back, I want to say like 1999, before I even thought of these, these things going on the pilgrimage, I kind of had that experience uh, at in Montreal, I was with my dad and we went to St. Joseph Oratory, which is this huge Catholic church high up on uh, Mount Royal. 
And um, I remember a couple of things. One, you, you take these steps all the way up to the oratory, the church, and people are uh, going up these steps on their knees and they're reciting the rosary. And I'm like, well, that's, that's not something I'm accustomed to out of California. But I'm like, teach their own, you know, if, if a person wants to do that, that's, that's, that's their thing. And then we walk into the oratory and we, there's this room where people for over a hundred years brought the items that were connected to the miracle that they're attributing to the intercession of St. Joseph. And there's uh, all these items in this room, um, crutches, wheelchairs, uh, and, 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 you know, that was really powerful because it kind of nice connection with what you're, you're, you were saying there. Yeah. And yeah. I didn't know about this. This is in Montreal. Yeah. Montreal. Okay. It's, that's that, uh, interesting. I'm always uh, fascinated when people leave yeah. the artifacts after, uh, because yeah. it's, you know, in some, some ways sort of like anthropological proof or something that the miracle yeah. or the intercession happened. That's right. Yeah. That's a, uh, I'm pretty sure that's a pretty big pilgrimage site in, in, in for Catholics in North America. Yeah. I was in Montreal a couple of years ago, and I think I went on to the outside of the church, but there was such a long line, I didn't go inside. So mm -hmm. I don't Now I'm kind of kicking myself that I didn't have that experience. So I guess I'll have to yeah. go back. Yeah, um, it's a great story. So in addition to um, the book that we, we've been talking about, you have published several other books, um, and I'd like to hear a little bit about those and how those fit into your own pilgrimage. So it's, it's, it's more of a... Uh, started out with like an intellectual pilgrimage, you know? Um, as I said, I, I teach juniors in, uh, at a Catholic high school, all boys. And right when uh, Pope Francis announced back in January, 2015, that he would come to the United States to canonize St. Huda Barossera uh, in the media right away. It was just, uh, the controversy, uh, he was, uh, nothing good came of that. And why are you canonizing him? That whole thing. So, of course, my students were confused because I talk about St. Hunap Rosser all the time. You know, the, the school I teach at is named after him. And um, so some of the guys really were sincerely confused, like, hey, I'm getting mixed messages here. So I ended up writing a book mainly directed to high school aged uh, youth on um, it's called St. Hunap Rosera making sense of the history and legacy. That's the subtitle to help young people make sense of it. And I just follow the historical method that I teach young people as a history teacher. Um, and, you know, as a researcher, you gotta, you gotta be open to what you're gonna encounter. And for the most part, my previous understanding was pretty, pretty, pretty good. It's pretty substantiated through the evidence by historians, because I was well aware of what um, people who are against him, their arguments. And uh, so that brought me a lot of confidence, like, wow, after a lot of research is this story that's out there is not, it's not set in stone, that's for sure. And I, I think it comes from a real place of pain and anger. And I, I, I recognize that. But when you talk to historians and archaeologists and, 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 and you know really experts in this field, you don't hear that story, interestingly enough. Yeah. So I wrote that book, and I think uh, the timing was very right because it, it did very well for a self-published book. And the second book I did traditionally through a uh, small publishing house out of Phoenix area. And um, it's called Who Was St. Hunap Rosera? My son at the time was like eight years old. He loved these books called Who Was Books? Who Was Magellan? Who Was Anne Frank? Who, you know, you name it. And uh, he goes, dad, you should write one called Who Was St. Hunap Rosera? And I had a lot of fun writing that because it's for, in California, fourth graders have to do, uh, they study this part of history, uh, colonial, colonial California, Spanish and Mexican California, the native Californians. And 
through my research, I, I it's it's historical fiction. It's through the it's not it's through the lens of those who knew Ahuna Brosera and interacted with him. So it was kind of unique in that sense. It's, it was really fun writing it. And the foreword was written by um, Bishop uh, Robert McElroy of, of, of San Diego, who was my professor at the University of San Francisco for the master's program. And he was just elevated to uh, Cardinal in the Catholic Church yesterday. He was the only uh, Cardinal in the Catholic Church in the United States uh, yesterday. I'm sorry, I, I worded that wrong. He, he was the only new Cardinal from the United States. And that happened yesterday in Rome. So that was really exciting. And then my third book uh, came out of the subject. It, when I was researching my first book, I was, I don't know what I looked up, but I came across these writings from a California mission Indian. His name was Pablo Tak, who is connected to, he was uh, born and raised at Mission San Luis Rey de Francia in Oceanside, California, in uh, North San Diego County. And he's like the reverse story of Junipero Serra. He went to Mexico City and he's like age 10 or 12 years old and went all the way to Rome to study for the priesthood. He's like a reverse cultural exchange because in Rome, there was a university there and it was uh, where seminarians or men studying for the Catholic priesthood came from all over the world to study. And he left the writings, uh, his, early, his writings are the earliest from a California mission Indian. And he also includes like the language of his people. And um, he's just, it's just an amazing story. And I was like, I'm born and raised California. How have I never heard of this, this Pablo talk? His name is Pablo talk. So that book, it's a biography and it's uh, titled Meet Pablo Talk, Indian from the Far Shores of California. And I actually started a petition because I really think he should he should be recognized as a saint in the Catholic Church. And of course, that needs to go through a very formal process. But the the start, the beginning of that is a petition, you know, it's kind of a grassroots thing. And so more make research, your best case here. Make your well, best case for, for Pablo Talk's sainthood. Well, the thing is, uh, Cardinal McElroy is the bishop of San Diego, so it'd have to go through him. So that's uh He's a good guy to know in regards to this. Um, I have 600 signatories on the on the uh, petition so far. Only started a few years ago. So if you just put change.org, Pablo Talk, it'll come right up. That's for sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. So he's just a fascinating figure. And um, I think he gets lost in this whole controversy thing that's really been prominent since the 1970s in academic circles. And um, I think it's really disingenuous that those that are aware of him don't bring him up because he is a celebration of, I think, what the Franciscans intended, you know, in terms of sharing the faith is something to be celebrated. And uh, I know there's different perspectives on that, but he did a lot of things, even I think a secular person would really appreciate. It's like, whoa, the language of his people, his writings are there's about the history of the native tribes of Southern California. They're the earliest writings from it. So they really give a unique perspective on that whole part of history, right? It seems like it's, it is a very important or maybe even central part of your scholarship to highlight the stories um, and the events of lesser known yeah. figures or, or people who have not been known yeah. at all. Yeah, I'm really trying to get it out there because it's really sad. And you know, that, that there must be a whole school of psychology and philosophy around that. And, I, and I'm not, I'm, I don't know enough to really speak to it, but I'm, there must be like, memory like why do we remember certain people certain things and not others and i know there's just too much right but it really nicely i think connects with pilgrimage right because this life is fleeting like it or not i mean that's a fact of life right and i think that's a pilgrimage kind of for me kind of reminds you me of like 
that fact and I should be better. I mean, I should be better because not only do I believe this life is temporary, I also believe in another life for eternity. So there's no time like the present, right? That rather than putting things off and, and I think a pilgrimage time with yourself and your thoughts really helps put things into focus. Um, communally. Yeah. And I think it's, and it's been kind of the common person throughout history that's gone on pilgrimages whose stories are never heard. Are they transformational? Are they meaningful? Are, did they contribute even to the local community or the religious body? Probably. And we simply don't even know them. And I wonder, I wonder just how important it is, but I mean, Pablo did something really amazing, you know, and, um, that is, that should be recognized. And there's nothing in his, because he lived a very short life. Interestingly enough, he actually died of disease in Rome, right? Um, during uh, ep- epidemics that were sweeping the city. And, but he made it very close to being an, or, an, or, an ordained priest. And he was going to return to California and to serve the uh, native communities here. So he left a record which is really powerful for the rest of us. And it's very positive. And there's nothing in his story that says uh, he was anything but holy. He, he was such a holy guy. And his writings really support that. We don't know anything that says otherwise. Uh, a, lot, a lot of things need to be done. I mean, we need to know from the Luiseno people, which he was a member of the Luiseno uh, Indian peoples. Uh, do they? Pray? I know for a fact that he's remembered. But we, we need to know those stories. And there's there's a lot of infighting in that community where some are federally recognized tribalists, others are not. And I think sometimes they see people like me as an outsider and they don't want to be so forthright. But I, I gave a talk to a wonderful group of Catholic Native Americans. They're called the Tekakwitha Conference and uh, in Cincinnati a couple of years ago. And they were, uh, some of them that I spoke to, I gave a presentation to, they were Luis Enio and they, they knew his story. And I just wish that some of them would come forward and get it in writing, you know, that, uh, I don't know, you know, it, maybe maybe it's not there. Maybe I'm just uh, fishing. But I, I'm confident that a powerful story like that is well known. It should be better known. Uh, every school child in their textbook should learn about him. and. Uh, I think that's an important part of the narrative of mission, California mission history. In terms of, of you as a pilgrim, I mean, and you've talked about you're also a teacher. Do you approach pilgrimage from, some t- from an educational perspective or have you considered taking students with you on pilgrimage? Well, that's interesting that you bring that up because it's very timely with um, work. My, my department, and I are having conversations about kind of restructuring the curriculum. We currently have uh, theology for three and a half years. Uh, we want to make it four. And we uh, want to interject uh, electives junior year. So I think one of the ones that I'll propose is one on the uh, history and spirituality of pilgrimages. And um, we'll do a local one. A local one because where I am, I'm on the San Francisco Peninsula. We're like midway between Mission San Francisco de Assis, which is uh, popularly known as Mission Dolores. It's in San Francisco, and um, Mission Santa Clara de Assis, which is on the campus of uh, Santa Clara University. Santa Clara is like the city just north of San Jose, so we're like right in between, and we're about three blocks west of El Camino Real, which I know that um, you and Edie Sunby Littlefield talked about the El Camino Real, and she she was nice enough to, uh, Edie's known as the Mission Walker, and she wrote the uh, forward for my last book, The Pilgrimage. Yeah, she's, she's wonderful. Yeah, she really is. a lovely person. Yeah. And um, so maybe that would be nice to bring uh, students on a pilgrimage. And really, your your essay was so helpful to almost use as a framework for it, you know, the, the different stages. And uh, 
Well, is I I just published I it, I don't know this book just came out this this month maybe uh, there's a book called Pilgrimage is Spiritual Practice That's a it. handbook for teachers wayfarers and guide that one yeah okay so yeah. you've seen it okay so the developmental yeah. framework I thought that's what you were referring to but I thought has he yeah. already seen it uh, because it just yeah came my, out. my okay. colleague uh, who just finished the uh, Santiago de Compostela uh, bought it and shared shared that with me so. His name's Nathan Cho. He's a great guy, and he's the one that he, yeah he's the one that went on okay. five pilgrimages in uh, in Spain. Okay, well I'm glad that it's that that the I mean it's a, a mm -hmm. great topic for a book too, and the compilation of yeah. essays um, is, is really interesting uh, from an education standpoint, and for those who are mm -hmm. who are guides, which is actually what prompted me to ask you the question, just because I had been involved in this project and and heard a lot of the discussion around. Uh, people um, at varying levels of educational institutions taking mm -hmm. students on pilgrimages. Yeah, I think that'd be a great thing to do. I think guys would be very receptive to it. I know when I um, I share with my students, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to them about it on occasion and they're pretty blown away, like 800 miles, are you kidding me? Oh my goodness, that's crazy. Yeah, that's a long, people who are not used to walking cannot yeah, even yeah. fathom that. And even people who are used to walking realize, I maybe have a more realistic uh, grasp on just how yeah. far that well, is. Well, you know, um, yeah. I'm pretty sure most of us can imagine California on a map, how it looks. And the reason why it's 800 miles is because it's not a straight line. You know, you got, uh, you're going north and then you have to go inland a little bit and then back and so on. So El Camino Real is most of the missions follow Highway 101 that I referred to. And then in Southern California, it becomes I-5. And, but you have a lot of offshoots. So that's why you're, I remember like two nights before I actually went up to Sonoma and started walking, I did a Google map search, Mission Sonoma to Mission San Diego. And it's like uh, 500 miles if you're driving, right? So you're tacking on like 300 miles to kind of really actually go to these different missions. It's not a straight line. So if you were to take a map and, and basically take a line from San Diego and just take like a line north to the Oregon border, it's like 850 miles, 840 miles. So what I, what I did and others, about 50 plus of us since 2000 and eight, I want to say, walked basically from like San Diego, it's like right up the I-5, up to the Oregon border, which that is pretty amazing when you kind of look at it that way. Because um, I've, I've driven that before from Oregon border to the Mexican border at Tijuana. It's like, that is a long way. <laughs> yeah, people don't realize just how large yeah, the state of California yeah. is. It is yeah, massive. I, I mean, it's bigger yeah, than you guys are countries, east coast, right? right? And it's like, oh, 800 miles? Wow. Yes. I, I went through five states in 800 miles. You know, out here, you're going through one, you know, so much vast. Yeah, more vast. Yeah. Yeah. So what what's next for you? You've you're obviously very passionate about pilgrimage and this the, the latest book is entitled that. And it seems like there while it was finished sort of in totality um the the mission trail pilgrimage was finished i assume that you already have some things that you're thinking about um about well, what you'll do next you know originally i watched the movie the way that was when that came out with martin sheen and i was like oh i want to do that someday and I read a few books about it. I did a little research and I'm like, this sounds great. I could do it with my son when he gets of age. It'll be a great thing to do, father-son bonding. And, um, and then COVID hit. And But actually before COVID, I started this. And why, why go all the way to Spain when I got something in my own backyard? And I think I could experience religiously and spiritually some of what people experience in uh, Spain. But I do hope someday to make it to Spain. I think that would be really wonderful experience. And, um, and it's a lot shorter too, right? So 500 miles. 
like that that's that's pretty cool and maybe my my with my son maybe some of my siblings will go with me that'd be really great uh and professionally in terms of uh, writing uh i'm kind of slowing down in that regard just because of uh you know other other responsibilities and i do think uh i'm going to write a curriculum for a class on pilgrimage religion and spirituality here at Sarah, which, which will be, uh, that'll be time consuming, but I think really well worth it. I taught my very first pilgrimage class uh, over the summer, and it, it was something that had been in my mind for a long time, and it was, it didn't feel like, oh, that's great. Um, so yeah, it was uh, focused on, on well-being. Um, so I think that it can be really rewarding to be able to develop your own curriculum and then bring in all of the readings that have been meaningful yeah. to you and then be able to teach others is, is, yeah, is really thanks. rewarding. Thanks. I'm looking forward to it. Um, one, one final question. Um, I appreciate actually that you talked about going on a pilgrimage in your own backyard. I think that resonates with mm -hmm. a lot of people right now. You know, people have discovered sacred places because of the pandemic, right where they live, or they have looked at journeys that they may have not considered a pilgrimage and now see yeah. it as a pilgrimage. So I do think the pandemic has reshaped how people view movement and travel and what that means and how it can be more sacred or meaningful or special. Uh, for for someone who is thinking about what a pilgrimage is, is it really complicated? Can you offer some final thoughts? No, about that? I think there's so much information out there. It's amazing. You know, even uh, your fingertip on the uh, World Wide Web, there's so much information on making pilgrimages. Uh, practically speaking, for the California Mission Walkers, you have uh, Butch Briery's uh, guidebook, and that's a, you know a go left, go right, you know a little summary of what you'll see and so on, which is very helpful to people. Um, but in terms of in your own backyard, you know, I, I don't know if a pilgrimage, if it's necessary to to have pain. You know, I experienced pain. Um, I'm bald, as you can see, and uh, Early on, I had my hat on. I'm pretty good about that. And uh, being so fair-skinned in lotion, sunscreen. And I remember my the top of my head being hot for like two days. It was like uh, heat was coming off of my head, even after I showered and cooled down and slept. So I learned I'm going to put a, uh, a headscarf or something around there to help add for safe, for comfort. And uh, I don't need it. I lost toenails. I ran out of water. I don't know if people necessarily have to go through that to get a good pilgrimage experience. You know, you can do research. There's books out there. You can drive them. You can do it virtually, like I said. Uh, and of course, I mean, the reason I point this out is I don't, it's a myth that the friars walked everywhere. They, they took mules on occasion. Um, yes, the Franciscans and their spirituality at the time was about like uh, not to take handouts and, 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 and there should be some element of uh, physical sacrifice and things of that nature. But Sarah himself didn't walk everywhere. He took ships. He took mules. He did walk a lot and they did walk a lot. There's no offense or buts about that. Um, but I don't know if you have to do the whole walking part, right? To deepen the person you're becoming from what you were, you know? And I, I guess that in the, remember in the uh, movie, The Way, what makes a true pilgrim, right? That that guy from Ireland, the, the writer, the travel writer. Yeah, I think that's an ongoing uh, question for everyone. Uh, I think the key is just getting started and getting out there and, and pushing the envelope of what you're comfortable with because it could be a really profound experience. 
I think that's a good place to stop beyond we can, the, your, all of your books, I, I've found them at various outlets, mm -hmm. Amazon being one. Do you have a yeah, personal missions, website? Yeah, it's missions1769.com or missions1769.com. That's uh, the year that Sarah came to San Diego, 1769, so. All right. Well, All thank right. you so much. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's been really uh, nice thank to talk you. to you, Thank Christian. you so much. Thank you for listening to Meaningful Journeys. This program is supported in part by Antioch University, New England, and the Meaningful Life Institute. We would love to connect with you on social media, on Instagram, on Twitter, and Facebook, or by email, info at MeaningfulJourneys.net, or our website, www.MeaningfulJourneys.net. We hope you will join us next time on our shared quest for meaning as we connect humanity one step at a time.